Come see how light and darkness jump for junction. And the okay don't enter one chance. Living in bondage. You know they hard for desperate man to become diabolical. Child! His friend Polo can't show him new levels. He talks say human sacrifice now the latest hustle. Child! Living in bondage. How man go sacrifice his own wife for money? Child! This world is wicked, oh! Now that wickedness will lead person to trouble. Now your wife goes to find you and <laughs> Living in bondage. Starring Kenneth Okonkwo, Kanayo Kanayo, Bob Manuel, and Ngozi Nwosu. Producer na Kenneth Nwewe and director na Chris Obi Rapu. Na them we cook this sweet story. Marketer and distribution nationwide na Neck Productions. Where they 51 Iweka Road, Onicha. 123 Namdi Azikiwe Street, Ibumota, Lagos. Living in bondage. Grab your copy now. Before it was rebooted in 2019, Living in Bondage was the movie that redefined Nigerian cinema. It was released in 1992, and it followed Andy Okeke, a down-and-out businessman who sacrificed his wife for wealth before eventually going mad with guilt and confessing his crimes. In 1991, a broke film student named Okechuku Ogujiofor decided to make the movie. He didn't have enough money or equipment to actually make a feature-length film, but he knew someone who did. <laughs> Kenneth Nebwe had made a name for himself as a successful film distributor in Lagos. He would import empty VHS tapes from Taiwan and resell them as feature films typically recorded on VHS camcorders in just a few weeks. Okechuku's pitch to Mr. Nebwe was simple. With 118,000 naira, they would make a movie together in Igbo, the language predominantly spoken in southeastern Nigeria, and have Chris Obirapu direct it. The plan was also to market and distribute that movie mostly across the Southeast instead of Lagos, where most of these straight-to-video movies were already being distributed. Living in Bondage went on to sell over a million copies, and it became a cult classic, not just in the East, but all over Nigeria. Even though it was shot in Igbo, it broke regional barriers because the story captured the imagination of the entire country. It was a story of desperation, supernatural cults, and a moral dilemma that came together to make the ultimate cautionary tale. <laughs> Fast forward to today, home videos hawked from hotspots like Lagos, Abba, and Kano have made Nollywood the second largest producing film industry in the world. The movies and their grainy camera footage, off-key scores, and aggressive marketing introduced a distinct visual style that defined the aesthetics of the 90s and the early 2000s. Adama, Adama, why are you going dressed like this? Mom, this is what Jeff wants me to wear. I'll be fine. I'll be okay. Bye-bye, Mom. <laughs> this boy. And they changed Nigeria's film industry forever. When television came to Nigeria, it ushered in an era of classic soap operas like Checkmates, created by Amaka Igwe in 1991, and sitcoms like Papa Ajasko and Company, created by Wale Adenuga in 1996. But before stars like Richard Moffat Damijo and Peter Doce graced our screens, those screens were dominated by colonial propaganda. 
and we didn't start making our own films until the 70s. As Nigeria's entertainment scene evolved from theater plays to a golden era of film, it was the home video producers of the 90s and their business savvy that would sustain the industry. Today, Nollywood has gone full circle, from tapes played on boxy television screens to big screen cinema releases and back again to even smaller screens. But even with all the upgrades, Nigerians are still nostalgic for that era of Nollywood that gave the industry all its defining quirks. The era that was powered by diesel generators and street hawkers selling tapes in traffic for 300 naira. As these filmmakers found a way to make movies sell, they would boost an industry that is now valued in the billions. And even though they were criticized as low budget, badly written, and a negative influence to society, they still managed to win over the hearts, eyes, and ears of the entire nation. You're listening to Uncultured, a podcast where we give you short answers to culture's biggest questions, so you don't have to worry about looking uncultured. I'm your host, Bodge, and this is How Nollywood Changed Nigerian Film. Nigeria's film industry became Nollywood over a phone call that happened in 2002. Norimitsu Onishi, a journalist for the New York Times, had come to Lagos to spend some time behind the scenes of the action. He was on set for the production of Blackmailed, one of over 400 home movies that would go on to be released that year. After spending time in Lagos with the industry natives, Onishi called his editor to talk about his adventures in the city. Over the phone, he said, It's like Hollywood or Bollywood, but in Nigeria, Nollywood. A couple of days later, his piece was published in the New York Times with the title Step Aside LA and Bombay for Nollywood. If Onishi were to visit now, over 20 years later, he would find a completely different industry. Today, Nollywood movies are made between studios and prime locations, with budgets that could make almost 2,000 straight-to-video movies. In 2019, Ramzi starred in a reboot of Oke and Nebue's 1992 cult classic. The reboot was called Living in Bondage, Breaking Free, and it was the story of Andy's long-lost son. It starred Kenneth Okonkwo as Andy again, but this time, 25 years later, and he's an ordained priest. It had a budget of about 200 million naira, over a thousand times the budget of the original. And when it came out, it broke Nollywood box office records by recording the highest grossing opening weekend for a Nigerian film in 2019. Spoiler alert, Noah, who plays a rich businessman, also turns out to be the leader of a cult notorious four. Human sacrifices. 
Living in bondage, breaking free was a part of a trend in the film industry that started sometime in 2010 with filmmakers like Kunea Falayo. They ushered in what industry heads would call New Nollywood, the sleek, updated version of Nigeria's film industry that has upped its production quality in a big way. Releases like Kunea Falayo's figurine, Shineze Anyene's Inje, and Kemi Adetiba's box office record breaker, The Wedding Party, marked a new, more sophisticated era for Nollywood. An era defined by bigger budgets, bankable stars, and distribution deals with international streaming platforms. But before cinema releases and Netflix deals, Nigerian movies in the late 90s and early 2000s were released on tapes and discs. We went from VHS tapes to VCDs and finally to DVDs. And these straight-to-video releases radically changed the way Nigerian movies were made. After the success of Living in Bondage in 1992, Nebue would go on to produce more thrillers like Glamour Girls, a film about devious femme fatales that starred veterans like Yukiri Anunobi, Ngozi Ezeunu, and Zakoji. He followed his 1992 formula and distributed both movies straight to video, but this time he made the films in English. Soon, stars like Genevieve Naji, Omotola Jalade Ekende, and Stephanie Okereke shot to the limelight in iconic movies like Girls Cots, Blood Sisters, and Emotional Crack. How on earth did my husband know I was here? I called him. You did You heard me. I called him. He and other distributors made Nigerian films accessible in a way they had never been before. People didn't need to be in long cinema queues anymore, and they could also watch more movies thanks to the producers churning out movies every couple of weeks. And since they were shot in English, everyone across the country could watch. It was this era that showed signs of what a successful film industry could look like in Nigeria. Because before entrepreneurs like Nebue came along, Nigerians used to wait in long cinema queues to watch imported films. And most of the homegrown entertainment was actually found in the theaters. In 1964, Ladoke Akintola, the premier of Western Nigeria at the time, got so angry he stormed out of a play he had come to watch with his ministers. It was Hubert Ogunde's play called Yoruba Ronu, and he was performing it with his traveling theater troupe at Obisheson Hall in Ibado. It was a story with a very direct message for two prominent leaders in Western Nigeria, Obafemi Awolowo and Laduke Akinsola. Ogunde was a playwright, actor, and musician, and Yoruba Ronu, his most popular play, translates to Yoruba's Think. It was a commentary on the friction between Awolowo and Akinsola, who were at odds on how to govern the West. And it got so provocative that at some point, Akinsola and a few of his ministers stormed out in anger. The next day, Ogunde and his traveling troupe were quickly banned from performing in Western Nigeria, and things would stay that way till 1966. The traveling theater started in Western Nigeria around the 40s, and it was one of the earliest forms of new indigenous entertainment. It was a lively mashup of music, dance, costumes, and mimes. 
And this is what most Nigerians were watching at the time. Before his ban, Ogunde was famous for putting on similar politically charged plays like Tiger's Empire, a story that challenged colonial rule. And it was also the first time in Yoruba theater that female actors were included in the playbill as professional artists in their own right. In the wake of the Biafran civil war, he performed Keep Nigeria One, a drama he produced to promote peace and unity in 1968. And he never shied away from political commentary. Later, he and other playwrights would start adapting their plays into feature-length films shot on celluloid film cameras. Like Aie, a story about traditional mysticism that Ogunde co-produced with a man named Ola Balogun and released in 1980. Artists like Ogunde, Ola Balogun and Moses Olaya would continue making movies like Black Goddess, Orumoru and Jaisimi. Jaisimi. And the movies they made would define Nigerian film's golden era that would last from the late 70s to the late 80s. In 1992, the Nigerian Film Corporation pushed to ban Nigerian films. They held a workshop on film policy in Joss to table the matter of Nollywood, and they all agreed it was time for regulation. Unlike the films of the 70s and 80s, Nollywood films of the 90s had gotten less sophisticated. They were usually either raunchy thrillers. Lady, I don't know what, what your name is, but would you please sit properly? I wouldn't tolerate this. I'm a man of God. Otherwise, leave my office. What's wrong with the way I'm sitting? Everything. Would you please sit properly? Or supernatural horror flicks. The Film Corporation was worried about how films were shaping Nigeria's image abroad. For them, all the witchcraft and adultery wasn't exactly tasteful. But filmmakers like Nebue and Oki, and the Yoruba filmmakers who dominated the industry at that time, grew an appetite for a certain style of filmmaking. And these movies changed the way Nigerian films were shot in the 90s and 2000s. Yes, he stays here. He's a destroyer. Action thrillers like Isakaba, directed by Lancelot Imaswe, were always accompanied with theme songs that narrated the plot of the movie. Movies like Abuja Connection that established stars like Yukiri Anunobi were part of a growing genre of femme fatale flicks that featured scheming women in synthetic wigs and second-hand American fashions who were hungry for political power. Horror movies were packed with bad special effects that made them vintage cult classics. Like End of the Wicked, written by Helen Pabio, that became one of the most controversial movies of its time. It was a story of blood-drinking children sworn to a satanic coven. This 
Best Era would also give us some of our greatest comedic actors like Nkemuru, who starred in the 2003 classic of Sofia in London. Fantastic! Anosita Eheme and Chinedu Ikediezi, who gathered a cult following as Aki and Popo after working together for the first time on the 2002 film called Aki Naokwa. These films may have been low-budget with stilted dialogue and bad lighting, but they were Nigerian stories by Nigerians that were commercially viable without any external help. They would spread beyond Nigeria and across Africa and gather fans from countries like Ghana, Cameroon, Tanzania, and Zambia. But the film corporation reflected a perception of Nollywood that still accompanied its obvious commercial success. All the melodrama could mean that it wasn't exactly taken seriously sometimes. What have I done to you? I mean, what have you stand to gain when you snitch on me? You niggas snitching on my ass like crazy. Snitching on my ass like mad. Compared to the literary and art scenes that were thriving abroad, Nollywood stood out as lowbrow and tacky. But it still did what art was supposed to do. It reflected the time. Nollywood was very focused on giving an exaggerated view of society, right? And whether you like it or not, like your neighborhood auntie saw a being poor smoking as a bad girl. And her mate is the one that is probably writing the script. So it's not like they pulled it out of like thin air. And I, 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 it's a conversation I find myself having with people when they say well, Nollywood shaped the way that women were, were seen. I'm like, yeah, but like women were already seen that way. Nollywood just expanded, like, or put it on the platform where every other person outside of your immediate environment could see women like that, you know? So, yeah, it was like holding a mirror up, but in an exaggerated format where you could see the way that people already saw these things and then it was whipped into a storyline. I caught up with Anita, a Nollywood film buff and a co-founder of a publication that explores the behind the scenes of one of Nigeria's fastest growing industries. So my name is Anita Ibineta Iboike. I am the operations lead at Ikaba Media and co-founder of Inside Nollywood, a publication that seeks to enhance the quality of conversations in Nollywood through data and audience development. You can find me on Twitter at Iboike Anita, although I'm usually just tweeting about more and more. I was tweeting the pigeon, so but yeah. <laughs> So what are your top five 90s, 2000s Nollywood classics? That would be Osofia in London, Blood Sisters, Naked Scene, um, Igodo, Egg of Life, and then for a throw it in, like a wild card in there to be Akin Mokwa. So those are my top five or top six old Nollywood films. And the reason is that you can just keep watching them again. Like for Naked Scene, I just found the premise very interesting. I don't know if you have seen Naked Scene, but... The premise of Naked Scene was super, super interesting and weird. So, so those are like my top five, six Nollywood films, or Nollywood films. And why did you decide to start documenting Nigerian film news and culture with a newsletter? My love for film generally started like in my childhood. Like I grew up, you know, going to video clubs to write films and then coming back and putting the cassettes in like the, the player and just sit back and it was a, it was like a sacred moment like all of us watching a nollywood film and that nostalgia followed me through life 
it was just a no-brainer that inside Nollywood was what I was supposed to be. So I know old Nollywood was generally considered lowbrow. So why do you think Nigerians are now nostalgic for it? You know, it was still finish that happened before. You know when <laughs> like that's like it was actually sea finish because this is it. Uh Nollywood was um happy in the in the most crude form, right? So we used to sh- have um marketers just say, Hey, like this is the person who is raining or oh, this is the person I want to like make this film sell. And so they'll put the story together, they will shoot they were shooting the crudest form possible because that's what they had at the time. Meanwhile, you were watching actor and boss movies, right? Or maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger and like someone else. You're like, wow, like you just, it's imperialism in the, in the sense, right? I don't know how to explain it, but like the camera movement is solid. And then you finish watching that. And usually you're watching those films in the night so that your parents will not catch you, that you're watching them. Then in the afternoon, you're watching like Osofia in London, right? And Osofia is just going on the rant and it reminds you of an uncle that you know. So the order in God, it was, oh, I don't want to access with anything local. I want to talk in school. With I want to be cool. Like, I'm watching a Hollywood film. I know who that actor is. I know who this person is. So there was that mindset that was happening. And it did not help that for a long time, it felt like Nollywood was not going to advance. So everybody's camera was upgraded. But Nollywood's camera was not upgraded. So it was like, ah. But like, as, as, things, as things evolved, right, with Nollywood, the cameras became better and sharper. And we saw that, ah, Cameras are sharper. We now have the same cameras as the Jackie Chan's uh, film that we used to watch, as the Hollywood films we used to watch. Now, there was something missing. And what was that? It was the soul behind the stories, you know. That is missing. Like, the last time I connected with a story like this was maybe 2005. There is a soul connection, a soulful connection that people want to feel with the films. That's really where a lot of the nostalgia comes from, is that... Pictures are clearer, but that story used to touch my soul. So, Anita, why do you think old Nollywood aesthetics were so melodramatic and in your face? Nollywood was also very obsessed with moral justifications, right? So, they needed to... It was called home video for a reason, which is that the target market of the marketers was that we wanted these things to be watched at home, you know, with families... And so if people are watching stuff with their kids, at the end of it, there should be some sort of moral lesson. You know, there should be some sort of thing that they can draw their children's ears. And so you see, that's why it shouldn't be that. Mount Zion was going to be outrightly telling you, don't do this, don't do that. But like in mainstream Nollywood film, the bad girl always had to have a, have a bad ending so that your daughter would decide not to be a bad girl tomorrow and stuff like that. You needed to make sure that it was a home staple. And with the way that the society was at the time, not now that everybody is gentle parenting, but like with the way that society was at the time, it's like, see, if my kids are going to be watching this, they need to see some sort of repercussion um, for a character that I otherwise would not approve of. That, that's really what it was at the time. And what do you think has changed the most between old Nollywood and new Nollywood? I think people are not being honest anymore with storytelling. That when you essentially look at it, that's what it is. Because when you, when you saw films then, the mischief, for instance, we were watching, watching an Aki Avapur film, the mischief was very relatable. If you were watching a uh, a village setting story 
um, the mischief, the storyline was relatable. People were honest. Even the dialogue, dialogue was written as so people were actually talking to each other and like it was a conversation that was happening. I mean, there are some films, if you watch the films that have done well in the box office that the audience has have rallied around, the films that have, are very honest. So look at King of Voice, for instance. The honesty was palpable, you know, and that people should, could feel it that this, oh, this, this actually happens. This feels like it's a, um, but then there's also the fact that we don't respect writers and we don't respect the story process anymore. We don't spend a lot of time in uh, story development. There's also a lot of work in the pre-production stage. And some people will tell you that it's money that's our problem. But honestly, there's, a lo- there's laziness attached to it, to be, to be very, very honest. And until we do that work, until we start to actually tell stories that are honest, I will keep going back to honesty. So when you tie honesty, when you create an environment for writers to be able to write properly and know that story development is a thing that we have to take seriously, you find that the soul of the production, because without the story, there's no production anyway. Essentially, you just want to shoot a documentary. And for that, you need the script, you know. So at the end of the day, we need to go back to the drawing board for when it comes to our storytelling, when it comes to the kind of people who are writing stories and then the things that are inspiring them to write the stories. Film has become one of the most important artistic mediums of the past century. It started in France and got to Nigeria in 1903 through British colonists. Some of the earliest film screenings happened around this time at the Glover Memorial Hall in Lagos Island. But these early films were not thrillers or love stories. There were mostly documentaries of British life being used as colonial propaganda. And that meant they didn't really translate to a Nigerian audience. (sighs) Films actually made for local audiences didn't start taking off till 1926 with a film called Palava, made in northern Nigeria by a British filmmaker. And more foreign filmmakers like Sam Zeba would make history with Fincho. Nigeria's first feature film in color that featured an opening monologue from Hollywood royalty, Harry Belafonte. My name is Harry Belafonte, and I'm here to say a few words about a picture you're going to see. This picture is unique for two reasons. One, because its story is true. And secondly, because it was not filmed with professional actors or studio technicians but rather by the simple folk of a small Nigerian village. When Nigeria got its independence, Nigerian filmmakers took over the film industry. The first film in this era was Kongi's Harvest, released in 1970 and adapted from a play by Wale Shoenka. Meanwhile, neighboring countries like Senegal and Burkina Faso were already exporting high-quality films internationally. Senegalese filmmaker Usman Sembene went on to make the first feature-length Black African film during this period in 1966, his directorial debut called Black Girl. Que doit-on penser de moi à Dakar? Douana est heureuse en France. 
que je vis bien. And across newly independent West Africa, filmmakers were using cinema as a powerful tool for self-representation and nation-building. Just like in Francophone West Africa, movies produced in Nigeria from the 70s to the 80s were the politically charged dramas of Balogun, Ogunde and Olaya, and they would dominate the big screen until a smaller and more convenient screen would make its way to Nigeria. When broadcast television got to Nigeria, it used to be controlled by the military. Its privatization started in the 90s, and soon families were introduced to the sitcoms that made Nigerian TV. Before he gave us Super Story, Odd World, and This Life, Wale Adenuga was the chief cartoonist for Unilag magazine, and when he graduated, he started his own magazine called Ikebe Super. It was this magazine that would introduce us to our favorite TV character, Papa Ajasku. Adenuga would later adapt Ikebe Super into a feature-length movie called Papa Ajasku and also released it as a TV show with the same name in 1996. His TV shows joined an iconic lineup of TV programming that defined the early 80s and 90s. Shows like Fuji House of Commotion, Oddworld, and Tales by Moonlight would start a culture of home viewing that helped boost the imported videotape market. The golden era of Nigerian films meant that going to the cinema would eventually give way to the convenient, straight-to-video movies of the 90s. And together with the sitcoms and TV dramas, Nigeria's film industry would grow into a commercial powerhouse that rakes in billions in revenue every year. Old Nollywood is the part of Nigeria's film history that connects its artistic past to its commercially viable present. It may not have been as politically conscious as the movies of the 80s and 70s, but it was how Nigerians made sense of a time where things were changing fast every day. The filmmakers, actors and distributors that made these films without proper funding, technical equipment or even experience allowed the industry to keep growing despite the lack of infrastructure and support. They made more than films. They made industry. And without them, the Nollywood we know and love today would never have come to be. They did what they could with what they had, and they trusted the process. So, as always, to God be the glory. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Bodge. And if you like the show, please make sure to check out the next episode. Our producers for this episode have been Maiwa Idowu and Adora Odua. Our sound engineer and designer has been Daniel Olaolua. Original script was written by Adora Odua and was edited by Aditun Samiat. Uncultured is produced by Culture Custodian. A very special thank you to our guest, Anita Eboebe. Make sure to listen to our other episodes, leave us a comment and subscribe to never miss an episode. Follow us on social media at Culture Custodian everywhere. Bye.